Shabbat Shalom, everyone, and uh, welcome and thank you for joining us. The uh, Torah portion for this morning, uh, like many things to be found in the biblical record, presents to us an idea or an image that asks us in real life what actually happened. And what I speak about in particular is the Torah portion, much like most of Sefer Tvarim, the book of Deuteronomy. It speaks about the children of Israel now on the precipice of entering into the promised land are now forced to deal with issues that they didn't have to deal with for 40 years while wandering in the desert. While wandering in the desert, in the words of the Israeli rabbi Benny Lau, they lived in kind of a bubble, protected and shepherded by God throughout the twists and turns of life, an itinerant life in the desert. But now on the cusp of entering into the land, they would be forced to confront realities such as courts and enforcing laws and creating a stable and just society, about dividing land, laws of inheritances, dealing with torts and damages on a legal level, criminals, the whole spectrum of life as we understand it, they would be forced to form and to find answers for. Reminds me of the story with uh, David Ben-Gurion, Israel's first prime minister, at one of the very first cabinet meetings after the announcement, the founding of the state of Israel, Ben-Gurion asked for a budget to build prisons. Now back then, most of the cabinet was filled with utopian-like images of socialism that was rampant amongst the early Zionists. So they asked Ben-Gurion, how could it possibly be that in this Jewish state, this socialist labor Zionist dream that there would be a need for prisons. Ben-Gurion rightly, with a complete absence of naivete, he said to them, once you have a country, you're going to have criminals. And so the people, the children of Israel on the cusp of the land now would be forced to face those very same issues. But the other issue that they would be forced to deal with is when they entered into the land were the people who already lived there. Because that land, which would become to known as the land of Israel, was not empty. It was filled, as we know, with teams of Canaanite tribes. Archaeological records from years ago tell us that the Canaanites literally, particularly up north in Israel, 3,000, 3,200, 3,500 years ago, completely filled northern Galilee. So when the Israelites entered into the land, they didn't come into a land that was open. It was a tabula rasa for them to build, but in fact, there were people already living there. Once again, if I can draw a comparison, it would be very similar to the experience of the Aliyah Aleph and Aliyah Bet, the first initial waves of immigrants that came to Palestine under Zionist sponsorship. They didn't come to a land that was empty, but in fact, that they were multi-generational families, Arabs, who had lived there for hundreds of years. Which all led Arthur Kessler, the writer and who at that time was a journalist, who meticulously recorded as a journalist the events of the 1948 War of Independence in his book called The Promised Land. Kessler tells us perhaps one of the most interesting definitions of Zionism. He said Zionism in his mind, at least from the perspective of 1948, and I think it's true certainly in that moment, he said is akin to a 
a person jumping out of a burning building and landing on top of someone on the ground. The Jews, of course, are the people jumping out of the burning building. The burning building is Europe. They fall on someone unsuspectingly, and those are the Arabs who live there. And so the Israelites of the Torah period are entering into a land where there are people. And in this morning's Torah portion, we hear the command given to them. Hachrim tachrimu, the Torah says, that you should destroy these Canaanite tribes. You should eliminate them and destroy their gods and every trace of them to be found. So the question, of course, that comes to mind is that this is a horrific and violent commandment to eliminate an entire people or tribes of people, men, women, children, and everything and every, everything that they lived on. What seems like an eternity ago, but it wasn't, it was, I think it was nine months ago, I was honored uh, to, come with, to go with the congregation on a trip to Israel. This was late October in 2019. And one of the things I was adamant on us going to see, because when you go to Israel, it is always a competition of things that you, uh, things that you have to see versus the things that you want to see, and you never get to everything. But one of the things that I was assistant upon the group seeing is an archaeological site up north in Israel called Tel Chatzor. Tel Chatzor is one of the most important archaeological digs to be found in all of Israel today. And it is one of the oldest ones as well. Tel Chatzor was a major Canaanite city. It was, as we know from the book of Joshua, it was also one of the scenes of a great battle between the Israelite tribes that were just coming into the land of Israel and the Canaanites that were already there. And so as archaeologists began to dig, they realized that whatever they would find in Tel Chatzor would in fact answer what happened in the book of Deuteronomy. Did the command that the book of Deuteronomy gives to the children of Israel that they should eliminate and destroy to the last person every Canaanite in the land, did that actually come true? As they dug and they uncovered, what they found was a reality that was very, very different. They didn't find mass graves of Canaanites or Israelites for that matter. What they did find, however, was that the places of worship of the Canaanites and the statues, the idols of their gods, had their faces and hands cut off. Which is to say that the invading Israelites didn't engage in genocide. They simply cleansed it of a religious movement that was an anathema to the things that they believed. I speak about this not only because it emerges in our Torah portion, but I think that there's something here for us to connect with a very recent event. This week, we read and heard and saw of a peace agreement that was initiated between the State of Israel and Dubai, the, the United Arab Emirates. And of course, there was a wide degree of commentary to be found. People were very excited, particularly Israelis and Jews throughout the world, of yet another Arab country that was signing a peace agreement to normalize its relations with the state of Israel. Israel, of course, had been under a diplomatic and economic embargo with all of the Arab countries, 
beginning in 1948 with this announcement of statehood, and slowly, very, very slowly, some of the dominoes have been falling, starting in 1978 with the peace agreement between uh, the state of Israel and Egypt, followed by decades later a peace agreement between Israel and Jordan, and now we find with agreement with the United Arab Emirates. The people who supported the agreement were championing the fact that this was a normalization of relations, that it would open up not only tourism, but direct business and diplomatic contacts, and that Dubai, in fact, was just one piece in a number of other countries in the Persian Gulf area that would soon be signing a number of agreements with the state of Israel. They are, for example, Uman and, excuse me, and, and also Saudi Arabia. The people who criticized this agreement, of which there was no shortage of them, said that in fact this wasn't a real peace agreement because there wasn't really a war between Dubai and the state of Israel. Unlike those people who were trying to champion this peace agreement, uh, elevating it to the level of the agreements, for example, that Begin had done with Anwar Sadat between Israel and Egypt, or the peace agreement between um, Yitzhak Rabin and Yasser Arafat that laid, was the hope, of the long-simmering fight between the Israelis and the Palestinians. Unlike those agreements, the critics say, that there is no war taking place between the state of Israel and Dubai. That the people who live in the Emirates are not enemies of the state of Israel. It was perhaps that we could use an expression but it was like kind of a cold peace or maybe a cold war, but it certainly wasn't a hot war. But I think that there's something deeper in this. And the fact of the matter is in between all the lines of commentary, if people are for it or people are against it, the people who are critical of it also see a cynical political uh, maneuver by uh, Benjamin Netanyahu, the Israeli Prime Minister, who is under great, great political assault for the things that are taking place in Israel, both economically and with the corona plague, for him to kind of draw a success out of the hat to show that he is still an effective leader. But on a deeper level, I think that there's a truth to be found in this beyond these headlines. The narrative that we have been given for the past 30 or 40 years is that we have been told in particular by, by the liberal perspective, political perspective to be found in North America and in Europe that there can be no peace for Israel unless it makes peace with the Palestinians. And one of the things that comes clearly out of this from the events of this past week is that that is not true. Which is to say that one of the dangers facing the Palestinians at this moment is that it may very well be that the Arab world is comfortable moving past them. That perhaps that the, Israeli, that the Palestinians had their moment in time for them to negotiate a solution a lasting, permanent reconciliation with the Israelis, along with all the other territorial arrangements that would have been made, offers that had been on the table between the Israelis and the Palestinians starting in the early 1990s, 
And each and every time the Palestinians walked away, first under Yasser Arafat, secondly under Abu Mazen, that, that the Palestinian leadership was more interested in totality, either a complete success or no negotiation, either everything they wanted or nothing at all. And as a result, resultingly from that, it may very well be that the warning signs are already there, that irrespective of what certain liberal uh, left-wing elements in the States and in Europe want to tell us, that there can be no peace for Israel unless there is peace with the Palestinians. But in truth, what we actually perhaps are seeing is that peace is on some level very possible for the state of Israel with its neighbors, irrespective of whatever happens with the Palestinians. That maybe the Arab leadership throughout the world is tired of waiting for the Palestinians to get their act together and create some kind of peaceful situation. Which actually lays to rest another idea. That the argument long, long put before North American Jewry and world Jewry about the defense and support of Palestinian rights, that only that would bring peace to Israel, is something that needs to be reconsidered and reevaluated. Let me be clear. In no way, shape, or form am I advocating for Israel to abandon the search and pursuit of a two-state solution. It must be. But on the other hand, that can only be if there is an engaged, capable, and willing Palestinian government on the other side willing to make the necessary concessions in order to make that a reality. And I'll tell you just how true, perhaps, this statement that I'm making is that not only people on the left are wrong, but perhaps the people on the right are wrong as well. Because uh, as one of the elements of this peace agreement between the Israelis and the Emirates became more and more apparent, as more details began to leak out, this little golden nugget landed on the news desks. And it's interesting how both the Israeli Prime Minister Bibi Netanyahu and his government was very, very quiet on it. And it goes like this, that in exchange for this peace agreement with the Emirates, with Dubai, and presumably with some of these other Persian Gulf states that we are promised are going to come soon, Israel would have to agree to a unilateral freeze on its annexation plans, which we've already spoken about, and also put a freeze, a soft freeze, on its construction of new settlements in the, in the disputed areas. In other words, on the right we are told that peace could only come about, that the Palestinians would only be brought to a reconciliation by an undeterred and constant expansion of Israeli control over those areas. And in actuality, in real politic, we find that that's not the case. That the long assumptions of an effective, stable, two-state solution is in fact something that is seen on both sides of this conflict as the only way to be found outside of it. Ultimately, if I can turn back the page to what we began with this morning, what do we learn from the events of Tel Chatzor, this archaeological dig from so many thousands of years ago? 
Well, I would say to you that it's the same thing that we would find out of the pages of our newspapers of this past week. That in order to live in this world, it's not a zero-sum game. It's not what I have in the expense of you. But in the real world play out of how life works, and you, know, you and I both know this. We know this intimately from how we live and negotiate our lives every day. And on a bigger scale, on the world, on the political level, it is no different. It's not either this or either that. The reconciliation of these things come by negotiating and figuring out how to live with the people that you share space with. Our ancient ancestors, when they invaded Israel to make their home, and they came to attack Tel Chatzor, they didn't engage in genocide. They, in fact, left all the Palestinians there to live. And so, too, on the Arab nations, on the Palestinians, and on the Israeli and Jewish side, we, too, will come, and I believe we have come to an understanding that everyone has a right to live their lives, and we need to make space for them all. Shabbat shalom.